You're listening to AMWA's Diversity Dialogues, an interdisciplinary podcast that is designed to promote diversity of thought through unfiltered and honest conversations about all topics related to diversity and inclusion, highlighting the disparities and inequities in medicine and population health. And most importantly, what can we do about it? Welcome back to another installment of AMWA's Diversity Dialogues. I am your host, Cheyenne Brown. So without further ado, I am joined this week by Dr. Neelam Agarwal, who is AMWA's Chief Diversity Officer. And we are also joined by Donald Bell. And so I'm going to leave it to Dr. Agarwal to introduce Donald, and we'll get right into our conversation. Dr. Agarwal? Thanks, Cheyenne, and I'd like to welcome everybody um, who is joining us on this podcast today. Uh, I am so pleased to introduce um, our uh, speaker today with me uh, talking about all things older adults, uh, Mr. Donald Bell. Um, Before I have Don introduce himself, um, I'd like to just say a few words about how I've uh, come to know Don um, and how the relationship and, and my um, interactions with him has really made me a much more aware physician um, as it relates to older adults and the LGBTQ community. Um, many of you know I'm here in Chicago. Uh, I have been based here in Chicago for my whole career, and um, I have worked with many uh, non-for-profits uh, in the areas of aging and older adults. And when I first met Don, uh, it was through one of these non-for-profits called Village Chicago where we were really uh, building an inclusive environment for older adults who wanted to live in their homes and and not transition to older homes or retirement communities uh, in the city. And Don was one of the first uh, people that I met who uh, very openly said that I am a part of this community, but I'm also part of this community to raise awareness about older adults who happen to identify with the LGBTQ community. And for me, uh, as a person who, you know, a physician who sees patients uh, in the clinics and older adults, he really raised my awareness uh, of the LGBT community with older adults. And I've learned a lot from him. So I'm so pleased that he's here today to talk with me and share insights uh, about his experience in Chicago and beyond um, being a member of the community. So, Don, why don't you tell uh, our viewers and our listeners? A little bit about uh, what, who you are, where you're from, and what are we up to in Chicago? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for the invitation to participate in this conversation today. And a little bit about myself. Uh, I identify as a 73-year-old uh, cisgender, um, pro-feminist, uh, gay or SGL, meaning same gender loving, um, man of African, indigenous, and Scots-Irish roots. I'm a third generation native born Chicagoan. uh, So my family has been here in the city uh, since the time of the World's Columbian Exposition. And um, I'm a South Sider. And if you're familiar with Chicago at all, you know that Our city is large enough that we have three distinct cultural regions, 
known as the north side, the south side, and the west side. So I'm a south sider and a lifelong White Sox fan. So that's pretty much what I am. I'm a retired um, academic spending most of my time in higher ed administration in the area of student affairs. Uh, I am the proud father of two sons and the grandpa of seven grandchildren. And I spent a good deal of my life in the sandwich generation experience of uh, caring for my parents in their elder needs and raising my children at the same time. So that sandwich generation experience of about 30 years is something that sticks with one through uh, a lifetime. So now um, mom and dad have passed on. Uh, my children are adults. In fact, uh, this last month they've turned 40 and 41 I'm sorry, 41 and 42, and have become much too old to be identified as my children. So, <laughs> but I love those grandchildren. Grandchildren are very important. They're your, they're your natural allies against your children. So <laughs> we always value our grandchildren. And that's what I do, except in this stage of life, I've become a very active uh, advocate and activist. Uh, for those of us who are in the aging generation. Uh, we are experiencing things differently. This certainly is not my grandpa's aging experience or even my parents' aging experience. Things have changed as we've come into extended longevity, uh, as we've come into changes in, in terms of our social dynamics and political dynamics, as we are surviving uh, not one, but three different uh, threatening uh, uh, pandemics or epidemics um, as we are dealing with what it means to be at this stage of life at this time. Uh, I've spent a lot of time working on that. And mm -hmm. so that's how I come to this. And that's how you and I have ended up working mm -hmm. together in the past, Neil, on a, on a continuing basis, and that's why I'm here. You know, I think, you know, for everyone just listening and just listening to Don's, you know, history, you can already see there's so many things that he's bringing to this discussion today about, you know, from his background, his roots, uh, to his work in Chicago. And one of the things I can tell uh, everyone is that Don and I have had discussions quite a bit about healthcare, and um, really thinking about raising awareness in the healthcare system, whether it be with the physicians, the medical students, residents, the existing providers, the older providers. What are the needs of the LGBTQ community, especially when you talk to older adults? We hear a lot, and, and, and rightfully so, with our younger adults and the younger communities and and you know our transgender youth, et cetera. But somehow, I always felt that when it came to getting educated about mm -hmm. older adult needs, there was a, a lack of education. And it strictly went to medical. It went straight to the blood pressure control, the diabetes control, but the whole social elements and the gender roles and all of that was never taught. So Don, can you share a little bit your thoughts on what you've seen as a patient, because frankly, we're all patients. You're a patient too. What have you seen in the healthcare system 
Uh, and what did you like? What don't you like? And where do you see us moving forward? Well, this seems to be uh, a time of tremendous reframing of, of what medical care is like, what health care is like in our country, uh, both from the point of view of practitioners and from the point of view of patients. And in the LGBT community, um, people have to understand, first of all, who we are and where we came from. Those of us who are members of the aging community now in the LGBT community are a unique group of individuals. We are the people who have lived the entire arc of the civil rights movement and the LGBT civil rights movement. And you have to know where we came from to understand where we are. And I'll give you an example from my own personal uh, experience. Uh, as I mentioned before, I'm 73 years old and I was born on August the 9th in 1949. So I'm a, a mid 20th century person by birth. And at that time, when I was born, homosexuality was, was universally against the law in the United States and all of its territories and possessions, uh, very much uh, uh, as it was in, in, in the UK and the British Commonwealth and through most countries throughout the world. So we were born criminalized. Uh, we were listed in the DSM, homosexuality was, as, as a, a mental or psychological condition. And so we were pathologized. And then in most areas of faith and houses of worship, um, we were told that we were not consistent with the creator's plan. Uh, we did not fit into uh, the sexual binary in the proper way uh, in terms of, of our sexual orientation or later in our gender identity. So we were demonized. And this is what we were born with. And there were no pride flags. There were no pride parades. There were no SGAs in school. There was nothing along the way to help us know who we were. Um, for most people of my age, we had an awareness very early in life during the developmental experiences of childhood and adolescence that we were different, but we couldn't put a name for it. There wasn't language, there wasn't a word, and there wasn't a place, and there wasn't a social structure to, to raise us, to bring us into the community the way that normally happens in hetero-identified communities of origin. In fact, we risk being isolated or, or estranged from both our families of origin and our communities of origin. And so an, uh, an overwhelming number of LGBT people were separated very early from their families and their communities. So we suffer isolation from that. And we suffer the effects of, of living a lifetime of being silenced, of being shamed, and in terms of public policy, even attempts to erase us. If you remember the efforts of the, the Trump administration to remove the LGBT questions that were just to be added to the census. Uh, when, as you look around at different efforts that are being made now to limit 
uh, LGBT development and involvement in society. Uh, that's what we've experienced for our, our lifetime. So there's been a long term of being silenced. And the only way that we have safely been able to, uh, to, to receive medical care or other services all along the line has been by denying who we really were or hiding that. Those of us who were lucky enough to be able to do that. And for those of us who were not, those of us who were transgender, those of us who were sissy boys and dykey girls who could not hide uh, what society identified with us as, uh, they received lesser care and lesser treatment everywhere they went. So this is where we are and this is what we've been brought to. And so what we find now is that while there are similarities between the LGBT aging community and the general aging community, yes, social isolation is our number one issue in survival. Uh, sometimes it looks different from us than, than it does for others. Um, by the time people reach our age group, they've experienced the loss or the death of, of spouses uh, or partners uh, lifelong friends, parents, um, and some of us uh, have even suffered the hardest trauma of all, uh, the death of our children, whom we expected would bury us. Um, a lot of that has happened to members of the LGBT community, too, because our, our expanse is much broader than people assume it is. Mm -hmm. But in addition to all of those things, what LGBT people experience in particular is that in order to get housing, in order to get medical service, they are often forced to go back into the closet, meaning to deny their authentic selves and to deny the social and political advantages that we have made during the course of our lifetimes to come to where we are now. And after a lifetime, of being silenced, it is often very difficult uh, for people to full-throatedly say who they are. Mm -hmm. um, I think the general community might identify, and just thinking about how difficult it is to walk up to someone and just tell them your age, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, if you have to walk up to someone and you're seeking a service and you have to say, uh, I'm gay or I'm this or people wondering about it or whatever, there's reticence to do that because you feel you might be uh, experiencing another set of rejections that you will not get the adequate state service that you're entire, entire re you are entitled to. You will not get the welcome that you are civilly retired to you will not get the quality of service that you need if you share who you are. And so what we need are welcoming institutions, welcoming uh, providers to make a difference in that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Don, there's so many things that in my mind as you were speaking that I wanted to touch base on because <laughs> the first, you know, again, thinking about the healthcare system and one of the comments you made that you're just not coming in, people just weren't coming in or 
going to the healthcare system, that mistrust mm-hmm. of the system. Can you tell our listeners the mistrust on, on, what, on what level? I mean, mistrust is huge, but mistrust of not being heard, uh, treatments that would be, that are not sanctioned, um, mm-hmm. not knowing how to communicate. What kind of issues for the barrier to come in did you hear about, you experienced, and how have things changed if they have? Well, things have not completely changed. They're in the process of changing. Remember that LGBT people, and particularly LGBT aging people, uh, don't enjoy the same citizenship rights that most Americans enjoy. Uh, One sexual orientation and gender identity is not a protected class at the national level. And so there are inconsistencies amongst states. Here in Illinois, we have complete civil rights. But in most of the nation, while it is possible for us to get married on any day, in 29 states, you can get fired for being gay uh, the, the very next day. So we don't have the same standing in society that other citizens have. And based on that, we can't be sure that we will be received as anyone else would be received at any office of service, including our medical offices of service. And while we recognize that, say, physicians, for instance, uh, take uh, the Hippocratic Oath and that certainly allied uh, medical providers subscribe to that same value, uh, we face situations, and and we see them in the news all the time, where providers will refuse a service based on their own personal views or their own uh, personal uh, religious beliefs or whatever. And so we're we're not seeing service as as a civil procedure where you, you promise to meet the medical needs of society as society is, rather than as you prescribe it to be. And that's a huge problem for us. So the, 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 the risk of being rejected, the risk of not being accepted, is not only something that we have experienced time and time again, but is emotionally triggering for us. And so I happen to live in a community um, that... Uh, is an LGBT aging community. I live in a development that is Chicago's first and the nation's fourth uh, development that was specifically designed to be LGBT senior friendly. Now that doesn't mean LGBT senior exclusively because we subscribe to the very same human rights ordinances and open housing policies that we had to fight to get sexual orientation and gender identity uh, included in so in my own particular uh, residence, uh, the breakdown on the on the uh, dynamic of sexual orientation and gender identity is seventy thirty, meaning that thirty percent of our residents are hetero identified, and uh, so we derive uh, a certain safety from that, a certain uh, ability to be ourselves in a social situation that we are oftentimes uh, denied when we go out past this. 
we have to know that a place is safe before we are willing to identify ourselves. And that continues to be an issue for LGBT people of all ages, but definitely for those of us who are older who have experienced this over the course of decades. So I have a question, Don. You know, right now with your interactions with physicians and when you're mm -hmm. going in to receive care, Mm -hmm. How often does the physician talk to you about what I would say the social, the, you know, the, the buzzword social determinants or your living, um, your living environment or your, your family? And I put, you know, you can't, our viewers can't see me, but I'm putting this in quotes, your family structure. Um, how often do they bring that up when they're looking at, you know, blood pressure, diabetes, any other medical conditions? And if they aren't, mm -hmm. do you feel they should be bringing them up in question? In my own personal experience, <laughs> I would say rarely, uh, closer to never. And that is disappointing because uh, the sociopolitical dynamics of my life, in fact, uh, not only influence, but in some cases determine uh, the state of my medical health. Mm -hmm. And those are issues that have not been dealt with. Uh, I recognize that um, medical care, medical, uh, that health care is changing um, significantly, but unfortunately, slowly. Just as it is outrageous to recognize that um, while for a long time, uh, healthcare professionals have known that there's a difference in um, in coronary issues based on gender. It's outrageous to think that only in the last 10 to 20 years have we done medical research on women, particularly around those issues. Right. And the same problem exists, whether we're talking about race, class, or sexual orientation, and gender identity. And so uh, it's necessary unfortunately, for a patient to oftentimes push his or her provider into that space where they deal with sociopolitical issues. Now, my providers are hardworking providers because, because I'm going to insist that we deal with, with these things, you know, as I'm being interviewed and they're asking me about what conditions that I have. I say, oh, you know, I have the African-American panel. And the physician is usually shocked and says, what is that? You know, because, because she or he hasn't felt safe enough even to deal with the fact that I present as an African-American. But I said, oh, you know, just the regular stuff, diabetes, hypertension, cardiac issues, you know. And, yep. and as I had one emergency room physician said, well, I guess you're right. That is the African-American panel, you know. And of course... Medical research is getting to the place now where we can identify the impact of social trauma on one's medical status. Uh, as we can now, we have now uh, been able to see the impact of, of the Holocaust on native-born American uh, uh, um, successors of those generations of people. Uh, I'm sure that one of these days we will be able to see 
medically the impact uh, of slavery and racism on black people. And that that will ultimately uh, give some important information about the impact of those things on on our our longevity, on um, uh, our maternal issues, because they're there. You know, it, it is outrageous that uh, black women die at twice the rate of white women without uh, regard to their class or their education or their status uh, nationally across the country. And it is even more outrageous that in, in Chicago, that figure is six times to one. You know, it's outrageous. But of course, we, you know, we still live in, in a system that's impacted by all of those sociopolitical standards. So um, we have some of the best uh, medical institutions in the world here. But we also, in the same city, in the same metropolitan area, we have some that shouldn't even be dispensing supplies from first aid kits. And there are whole communities that have to to try to survive with substandard medical care. And that is, that's insane. So uh, we have to make a societal decision an institutional decision and a professional decision with organizations like yours and the American Medical Association and mm-hmm. other uh, allied healthcare uh, professional organizations that we are going to uh, reach for equity in in medical care. You know, I think one of the things that uh, comes up a couple many times when I've spoken to you know physicians in general and care teams. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes down to asking questions to patients, mm-hmm. obviously we look at the medical record and all of us know the medical record is by no means accurate at all um, mm-hmm. it, regarding labs, yes, but everything else, you have to really go through it and and talk to people and confirm and double confirm, is this exactly, is this, is this true? Is mm-hmm. this accurate? Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that has come up when we start talking about just diverse communities in general, Mm -hmm. and in this case, even here with the LGBTQ community, uh, why why would I ask about sexual orientation to somebody? Why would I bring that up if I'm dealing with uh, an A1C that's elevated? Mm -hmm. You know, and it comes in, should we ask? Shouldn't we ask? Is Is this offensive to some people? Is it an invasion of privacy? Uh, knowing that, you know, on the on census or on different documents, it's there. Uh, you know, what is your take on that? Um, for again, for especially the young physicians who are listening, you know, realizing that maybe your older physician attendings or your older mentors um, will may look at you and say, why are you even asking that? That's not pertinent or that's not relevant. What's your answer to that? Well, my answer to that, first of all, is that when if you have resistance to asking about sexual orientation and gender identity, you must first examine yourself for what that means. You know, most people speaking to people in my community who are hetero identified uh, when 
it is revealed that we are gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender, immediately go from who we say we are to their uh, speculations of the sexual activities in which we present. And they think that that's all that the identity of sexual orientation and gender identity is about, you know. And yet, if you ask them, if you identify as a heterosexual, is your identity solely about the kind of sexual behavior that you engage in? And the answer, of course, is no. Your sexual orientation and gender identity represent you know, a broad range of your human experience, a broad range of your identity, a broad range of how you present in society and are received in society. And just like race and gender, that is true for people who are socially marginalized around the issues of sexual orientation and gender identity. You know, mm -hmm. first of all, not every member of the community or every in every division of the community engage in the same sexual behaviors. <laughs> but being who you are is more than the sex you have, whether you're gay or straight. And people have to realize that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's and, well said. Yep. And it be, it's incumbent upon providers because they are the professionals to become proficient in, in learning who their patients really are and where they come from. And that will benefit all patients, including hetero-identified patients. You know, I, as I said, I, I um, participate in a lot of advocacy, and as such, uh, I do a lot of, of cultural competency training around sexual orientation and other uh, issues of, of marginalization uh, with providers um, and I was at a session that we were doing with uh, joint providers from uh, 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 UI Health and Cook County and Rush, and a very distinguished senior physician said, I, I'm not comfortable asking about that. Mm -hmm. And many people say that, you know. Yeah. But if we are becoming the best professionals that we can be, we have to be comfortable asking our patients about who they are. That's mm -hmm. simply what it is. You're not asking to engage in sex. You're not being called upon to judge people. All you want to do is to have a valueless uh, awareness of who people are and where they come from and what their life experiences, because that does a lot to tell you about their medical condition and their medical history. You know. So Cheyenne, I you know you've been listening along with yeah. me. It's, just, it's just learning so much, right? Absolutely. Um, what what are your what are your thoughts from where you're at? Um, again, you're younger than I am, right. and uh, in training and. What, do you, what are your thoughts from what Don is saying? And, and what questions do you have for him? So the first, the first thought, the thought that's been resonating with me now is that this, the entire conversation to me is a lesson on implicit bias. You know, if, 
you're referring to um, decades of this this type of treatment in the healthcare system, even after certain policies and certain recognitions have been put in place. And so, if if there's you know, as physicians, we're listening, and you think, oh, well, I'm not like that. You know, there's still room to check your implicit bias because there's there's so many aspects to this conversation that you could be ignoring and not realizing that you have this this thought inside of you that you're not recognizing. Um, and so that that's the main thing that I have been um, hearing right now. Um, but I think that um, learning this information, especially as a younger physician, I'm a I'm a little bit more hopeful for for the future. Um, knowing that there are going to be a lot more physicians practicing who identify as part of the LGBTQ community. Um, a lot of my um, colleagues that have graduated with me who are um, transitioning into the healthcare field, you're going to see a lot more um, physicians who will be in a better, a better place to, to identify with the community. But at the same time, you know, being training alongside um, these people and understanding for yourself now the, you know, what the healthcare needs are of the community. I'm, I'm hopeful that people like myself will be in a better position to, to make things, to make improvements moving forward, um, in the community. And so, but it's really interesting to, to, to learn what's happening. I watched, uh, I came across a video for the second time um, in a few months of a, a scenario where they illustrated two women who one identified as heterosexual and the other identified as lesbian and how their the timeline of their lives are were impacted based off of certain policies not being in place, certain discriminations that were in place in, um, in the 80s and the 70s where um, the lesbian couple could not marry. And the partner died before the um, things were put in place for marriage to be legal. And how the lives of these two individuals um, went into, into such different extremes. Just, you know, they use a lot of extreme um, scenarios where with their health and the partners dying. And um, one didn't have access to the pension or any benefits from their partner who they lived with for decades because they weren't married and the spousal benefits and all of those like socioeconomic issues that came into play in this video. I thought, I thought of, you know, going in, like, we don't realize how the elderly community could have ended up in, in some people ended up in homelessness and in poverty because of the way the system had an impact on their, their lives. So Learn. Um, I'm really um, enjoying um, what you're having to say, Donald. I'm I'm learning a lot uh, about your experience from from this. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate <laughs> that. That's important to me. If I may, just react to to yeah. some of the things that that you've said. Um, first of all, you represent to me uh, the the beauty and the optimism uh, <laughs> of youth. Um, when I was young. Uh, when we were on the lines, we, we really thought that uh, we could eliminate war, racism, and poverty in the space of our lifetimes. Now that I have more years behind me than in front of me, 
I recognize that these are not things that necessarily can be resolved in, in the space of one human lifetime, but certainly it is incumbent upon us to engage uh, actively in as much remediation as we possibly can over structures that have existed forever. And when you talk about Im implicit bias, we have to recognize that implicit bias is not just personal or individual, but it's structural or institutional. Mm -hmm. And that means that change comes more than from codification of laws or, or, or public policy decisions or from uh, professional uh, rules and regulations and statements on an issue. All of that is, is codification, but change comes not just from codification, but from acculturation. We have to, as people, truly internalize the values represented by those changes in codification. Um, the, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you know, outlawed discrimination on the basis of race, you know, but it didn't stop it. Yeah. And it won't stop until we truly become a society that values that, until we build that into our culture. And the same thing goes for the things that you're talking about. So it's not just codification, it's also acculturation that bring around, uh, bring about change. And that's an important thing to, to remember, uh, just so that when you assess what you've been able to do in the course of your lifetime, you'll, you'll understand that these processes, um, you know, are, are complex, but what we so I, are moving in a better direction. Go I ahead. Have a, yeah. I have a question, um, because we're going to continue this conversation with, uh, you, John, in part two of this podcast, because there are some things that I wanted to touch base with with regards to the medical conditions that we know are affecting the community disproportionately, raising awareness on that in part two. And then the other thing is clinical research. You and mm -hmm. I have talked about this for a long time, um, involving the community in clinical research and in doing so being responsible so that people are represented, as you said, for who they are in research, uh, not just doing the research and putting everybody in the box of male, female, et cetera. No. Um, and so we're going to touch base on that with the second part of our um, podcast. But before we wind up this session, um, I have a question that has come up with me from my, my friends to providers Members of the community and the older, let's say the older LGBT community, do, do the members prefer to go to providers that are like them? And we hear this sometimes when we do research, that sometimes people will come into research if you look, if the principal investigator or the team, the research team looks like the people that they're doing the research with. So what have you noticed in the community here and, and speaking here in Chicago or, or just even with your colleagues and friends across the country, do, do the members of the community prefer to go to providers like them or go to, I'm going to say, specialized providers that are focused on LGBTQ health? 
Mm-hmm. Well, the community doesn't have a collective standard that represents all of the community. Uh, there are, are cohorts, I'd say, in the community. There are those who prefer to go to people who do not look like them, who are part of the heteronormative standard that's out, out there because, again, we all take in the same socialization, uh, whether we're, we're on the privileged end of society or, or the, um, the marginalized end of society. We all get the same cultural values in, uh, socialized into us. And so uh, that group in the community sees those people out there as the proper people to go to. Uh, then there are those people who benefit from representation. It's important to see uh, LGBT providers for the LGBT community, um, and, uh, and, and, and that's a big thing. Uh, and then there are those who don't care because uh, uh, other than past the issue of safety, they're not associating their own personal experience with their experience out in in the medical world, and that's because they have become used to, after a lifetime of having to swallow all of that stuff down, mm-hmm. to swallow it down and not think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's a it, we need some of all of it, right? And and again, something that really fits everybody in the community. I, I like what you said about there is diversity within the community and that should also be embraced. And I think that has been one of the hardest things in medicine to understand. Um, Every community, no matter what community you identify with, whether it be in this case, you know, uh, gender and, and sexual orientation, if you will, versus race, ethnicity, there is diversity within that community. Absolutely. And to... Uh, check yourself, as Cheyenne mentioned, what are your assumptions? And therefore, for me, it means ask. I always say, just ask. And if you truly are interested in asking, patients will tell you. They will tell you. But if if it's genuine, I'm asking because I don't know. I'm asking because I want to know if this is important to you. I'm asking because it it could help with your care. Um, I'm always amazed how people will say, okay, I'll tell you. This is, this is what it is, or this is what I'm concerned about. Um, and the last question I had, I'm going to then hand it to Cheyenne, is, Don, personally, from your perspective, have you felt in the healthcare system that if the box is ticked, mm-hmm. that you are a, a gay male, or let's say a friend of yours is transgender and the box is ticked in that chart. Mm-hmm. Do you have a fear that that would be used against you or do you, or your friends say that they would never do that? They don't want that to be known because it would be used against them in some capacity. Is that fear still there? Uh, I personally don't have that fear. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why. It's, it's, it's a little complex too. Um. As, as a person whose life has been marginalized around uh, race and class and sexual orientation and gender identity, uh, the number one issue has always been race to me because uh, I present as a black man in society and 
people are busily engaged in that and they don't recognize the diversity that can even exist amongst black men. Uh, so they assume that I'm a black man according to what black men are to them. And um, so that's been pretty much it. When I identify uh, in terms of my sexual orientation, it seems to have less impact than my, my uh, racial identity. But for those of us in the LGBT community who are white or white presenting, um, that may not be the same situation. And I don't know personally, since that's not my experience. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, but I will say this, and this is what I feel is incumbent upon the providers. To get past this issue, what you have to do is to normalize your behavior. You know, inquire of all of your patients information about, about their racial or ethnic uh, identity, uh, about their class, about their sexual orientation and gender identity. And when you make it, a, everything that we normalize comes much easier to us because we've overcome barriers. So don't expect your patients to have the capacity to give you the information that you need to provide better medical care. And if you don't think that this information is not critical to the quality of care that you, you provide, then that's another issue. And I'm going to advocate very strongly with you to say that it is. Mm -hmm. The more that you recognize each individual patient as an individual, the more effective you can be in providing the medical care that that person needs. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, and I think that is a, a good point to end on. I think that that message right there that I personally will take that with me when I am interacting with patients. Um, that's that's the key. Uh, Dr. Agarwal, anything? <laughs> well, I think it was well said, Don. I mean, clearly we, we have a lot to talk about and um we're, we're pleased that you'll be able to come back and we'll have another session to start talking now about let's talk medicine now a little bit about the and what we know in the community about the medical issues. I would also, and again, just a little bit of spoiler alert, I will be talking about social isolation and the devastation of loneliness and also talking about the family structure in the LGBT community. I think this is one thing that, you know, providers need to understand what is family and what is not. It is much more than the biological family. And Absolutely. I think you started off even in our discussion about the loss that the community has suffered that many providers and care teams don't even know. The loss of friends, colleagues, whether we talk about you know epidemics, when it's with HIV, that loss or just lost to violence and we have to talk about all those things because they do affect health and they do affect wellness and it translates all the way through into older ages. So we have a lot to talk about, Don. We're thrilled you're going to come back. Absolutely. Diane, I'm going to hand it off to you to close out this session and I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Yes, thank you, um, Donald Bell, for being on and talking to us. I 
as usual, have learned so much um, from this conversation. And I can't wait um, for the next conversation where we continue with some more important topics. I know that our listeners have learned a great deal as well. And I, I really hope that our physician listeners out there or anyone um, who has to interact with patients or others in the community that you just take a moment to 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 take in what Don has said to us today, um, personal experiences and um, relaying experiences from the community as well, that we will will take take all of this into account. Um, and the the key takeaway today is to approach everyone as an individual. You know, this is a unique person that you're dealing with, and to approach them as such. Uh, so thank you again, Don, and thank you, Dr. Agarwal, for being on to facilitate this conversation. I look forward to our, our part two. Thank you both. Thank you. Diversity Dialogues is a product of the JEDI Council from the American Medical Women's Association. Thank you for listening.